family of churches, hey, to not just be looking to ourselves, but to go, hey, let's look beyond ourselves. Let's look into the family as well, which is fantastic. We already do so much with missions around the world, which is absolutely amazing. It's great for us to take a bit of time to focus on our family. Talking about that, kia ora tefano. Lovely to see everyone here today. Uh, I'm really privileged to be able to kick off our new series, Alignment, uh, based on the book of Colossians 1, which is uh, a favorite of mine and is a fantastic chunk of scripture. Um, Huge thanks to Pastor Daryl and Denise for having us here. It's always an honor to come and hang out with these guys, great pastors and leaders. And of course, they're part of our national leadership team. Uh, Their influence continues to extend beyond just what's happening here, but regionally and nationally as well. That is not a small thing. Lovely to be here with my lovely wife, Elizabeth, which is fantastic. So let's jump into it. We're going to get into the text today. We're going to unpack it. Um, The book of Colossians is a letter written by Paul to a church in the city of Colossae. Uh, It's a Gentile city on a trade route, very multicultural with numerous beliefs, um, which we're going to see later is causing some challenges. Now, Paul's never been there. Um, He didn't plant this church, but in his apostolic oversight role, uh, he is writing to this church to address some things that are going on. And scholars tell us that Paul wrote the book of Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians all at the same time and sent them off. So we're going to jump straight into the text now, and let's just pray before we do that. Father, we thank you, God, that your word brings light in our hearts. God, your word is truth upon which we stand. Lord, your word is a manifestation of who you are, Jesus. You are the word. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you will not only bring light in us, but God, as a result of that, that your light will continue to shine through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me jump into Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Important phrase. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. When we pray for you, because we have heard, of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So important, right? The gospel. It's the reason why we're all here. That's the message that changed our lives and brought us into this relationship with Jesus Christ. Just fantastic. Now, now there's one word in this passage that you've probably heard a thousand times. You've probably said it a thousand times. But you may not understand exactly what it's saying. And for us to really get our heads around where Paul is going in this letter, we need to understand that a little bit deeper. Now, it's the word Lord. Paul says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord translates from the Greek kurios, and the root word of kurios means supreme or supremacy, and and we see Paul reflects on that again in verse 18. Now, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon, a very well-respected and widely used Greek dictionary, uh, kurios means this. It means, he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which He has the power of deciding. That person is master, is Lord. It is used universally of the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner. So that's what Lord means. Lord means someone who is an owner of something, who has the power to dispose of it as 
he decides or sees fit, the one who possesses it in a very real way. Now, let me give you an example of why this is a big deal. So there was this one time when Jesus was walking uh, through the grain fields on a Sabbath with his disciples. They were obviously up early. Countdown wasn't open yet. They were getting peckish. And so as they were going through the grain fields, the disciples were grabbing handfuls of ripe grain just to snack on as they went. And the Pharisees, who are tracking Jesus' every move, are like, hey, you can't do that. You are kind of technically harvesting grain, and, and technically that's work, and therefore you can't do that on the Sabbath. What do you think you're doing? And if you read the story, Jesus brilliantly answers from the Old Testament, but then he makes this astonishing and explosive statement to the Pharisees. Matthew 12, verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I'm going to go back to Thayer's Greek lexicon for what they say about the statement Jesus makes. They write, The Lord Jesus was possessed of the power to determine what is suitable to the Sabbath and of releasing himself and others from its obligation. He is master and owner of the Sabbath. Now that is fascinating, right? Jesus comes along and he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. It belongs to me. I possess it. And I can dispose of it. I'm the owner of this, and I can hold or release myself or others from it as I choose. Now, see, this is why the Pharisees were so against him, because they understood what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying was, he was saying, this day, the Sabbath, I'm the owner of that. And that means I'm the owner of the commandment, and I'm the owner of all the commandments. And so Jesus was implicitly saying, I, yes, I am God. I am the originator of the commandments. And that is why the Pharisees were losing their mind over Jesus. So important that we get that. When we say, Lord Jesus, we've got to understand what that entails and what that means. And so when we read Paul talking about Jesus, as he does in this remarkable book, we get to see his thinking around this in much greater detail. Now, why is this letter so important? Well, like I alluded to earlier, it appears that in this very multicultural city of Colossae, that uh, beliefs from other religions are starting to come in and kind of infect the believers in this congregation in terms of how central Jesus was to the faith. Now, theologians aren't exactly clear exactly which beliefs were coming in from which religions, but it is clear that it was impacting how they viewed Jesus as Lord, and that was not negotiable to Paul, and that's why he's writing this letter. Now, what's important to note is that while Paul doesn't specifically spell out the problem exactly, he does specifically spell out the solution, and it's this, get to know Jesus better. And that's why he's writing this. And in fact, Paul's explanation of the centrality of Jesus Christ to the Christian faith is articulated here more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. And look, it's excellent advice for us today, right? Whatever the problem is, the answer is, Get to know Jesus better. And I think this is profound. This is actually very useful for us when it comes to the challenges of of being a Christian today. It gets to the core of things like questions about the Bible. 
Of course, we know that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicts the New Testament. And it's actually all about his story, history. It's all about Jesus at the end of the day. If we want to know more about the Bible and understand that better, we should get to know Jesus better. If we have questions about the issues of sin and how it relates and why it's important, get to know Jesus better. And questions about some of the key challenges of the culture of the day, we will find the answers if we get to know Jesus better. Okay? Get to know Jesus better. Keep him front and center. Uh, I, love, I love the Bible. I love reading the scriptures, but I always find myself with regularity back at Matthew again. I just can't get enough of reading through the Gospels. For me, it helps me keep Jesus front and center. Okay. Now, we're going to change gear just for a moment here because Paul covers like an immense amount of ground, and particularly in this first chapter of Colossians. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to scream through this. I'm not actually going to scream. I'm just going to go through this quickly. Uh, So I'm not going to give you a whole lot of depth. Uh, You don't have to remember any of this. Okay, At the end, I'm going to give you three core things that Paul is driving into in this. But it's important for us to see the bigger picture here of what Paul sees, because that impacts very greatly on his key messages to us. And we need to see how it fits together. So for example, Paul touches on four practices that we need to prioritize in our lives as Christians. He talks about four things that Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. He talks about four things about who Jesus is that we've got to get aligned with. And he talks about three reasons why we need Jesus. So hold on, buckle up. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. And then we're going to get on to three core areas a little bit later on that are important for us to know in more depth. So here we go. Four things Paul says must be priorities for us who follow Jesus. Firstly, verse 9, know the Lord's will. Secondly, verse 10, please the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, verse 11, be strengthened so that you can be patient with joy. I'm going to get back into that in a moment. And then verse 12, be thankful. So quickly, these four things. These must be priorities. Firstly, knowing the Lord's will. It's important we get this because what Paul is saying is that actually that's on us. He's already revealed himself to us. We need to actually intentionally seek to know the Lord's will in our life. Secondly, he says, please the Lord. Verse 10. You see, it's not just about keeping a frown off God's face. It's not about trying to avoid punishment. That isn't the Christian life. No, it's actually about putting a smile on Jesus's face. That's the Christian life. It's about pleasing him and delighting him with the way we are loving him and loving others in the world that we are on. It's an incredibly important paradigm shift that some of us need to get our heads around. Some of us are just trying not to get into trouble with God. That's our Christianity. No, 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 no. Not at all. We should be like kids who just want to put a smile on our parents' face. Amen. Thirdly, he says, be strengthened so you can be patient with joy. Verse 11. Now, this is important. We've got to be stronger. We've got to get stronger. Why? Because as Jesus said, in this world, we will have trouble. Trouble's coming. There's going to be challenge and distress. There are going to be waiting times in which we will need to be patient. But what he says is, here's the key. Get stronger so that you can be patient with joy. Every man and his dog out there can be patient and, uh, sorry, can be involved in waiting 
and grumpy. They can be trying to be patient and grumpy. Go out in the motorway any day of the week and you'll see people who have to be patient, but they're grumpy with it. Now, Paul says, no, no, we've got to be stronger than that. Us who follow Jesus, we've got to be able to be patient with joy. Important. And then lastly, number four, be thankful. This is the attitude of faith, verse 12. Thank him because he loves you. Thank him because according to Romans 8, he is working on behalf of us in the background the whole time. Thank him because he's coming back eventually to sort all this mess out that we can't sort out. Thank him that he has gone before you. Okay, next thing. Four things that Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. You have, number one, verse 13, being delivered from the power of darkness. Number two, you have been transferred into Jesus' kingdom. Also verse 13. Verse 14, you have been redeemed by his blood as God's possession. That's huge. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And then also in verse 14, you have been forgiven of your sins. Let's go through those quickly. Firstly, you've been delivered from the power of darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been set free. The devil does not have a hold on you. I still from time to time meet Christians who live in a constant state of fear about what the devil's going to do, how the devil's going to come at them. No, 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 no. You have been delivered from the darkness. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. You have been set free. It is a done deal. He does command his angels concerning you. You have to you have to not live in fear of that stuff because Jesus didn't deliver you for you to continue to live in fear. Amen. Secondly, from that, he's not only delivered you, but he has transferred you into God's kingdom. We see this in sport all the time when one player gets transferred from one franchise to another franchise. When he's transferred to another franchise, that old franchise has no hold on him. The coach can't say anything to him. The manager has no influence over him. No, he's been transferred. Likewise, we have been transferred into Jesus's kingdom. You know, in my experience, I've had large, long periods of my life when I've had to struggle with the voice of the enemy, just coming in the back of your head, knocking you down. You know what I learned to say? I learned to say according to Colossians chapter 1, sorry, buddy, been transferred, no longer playing for your team. You can just go away. We've been transferred. And then he says, we've been redeemed by his blood as God's possession. Verse 14. This is huge. When you redeem something, you give something over. You maybe give a t- coupon or a ticket, and in doing that, you get something as a prize. Listen to this. God handed Jesus over to death for you, and you are his prize. You are the position that he got from Jesus going through the cross. You've got to treasure your redemption. It is wonderful. And then lastly, number four, verse 14. You have been forgiven of your sins. The slate has been wiped clean. The slate has been wiped clean. You know, if you appeared before Jesus right now and you said, oh, but but Lord, I can't be here because of my, my sin, Jesus is going to say to you, what sin? I'm sorry, I have no recollection of it. You have been forgiven. So many of us live our lives believing that our future is conditional upon our past. And in spiritual things, and in terms of God's plan and purpose for your life, your future is not dependent upon your past. Amen? Come on. And Paul's only warming up. He's still more. Here we go. And now four things about Jesus. He says, firstly, in verse 15, that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Verse 16, he is the creator of all things. Verse 17, he is the sustainer of all things. And then verse 18, he is head and Lord of the church. Let me go through those quickly. The visible manifestation of the invisible God. What does God look like? 
If you want to know what God looks like, get a look at Jesus. He is the visible manifestation of God. That's part of what he came for, to give us a picture of what God looked like. Amen? Secondly, he is the creator of all things. Jesus is part of the Trinity, and this verse tells us that he was active in creation. In fact, everything was created for him and through him, once again, making it clear that Jesus is a part of the Trinity, but also that he is Lord, therefore, of creation. And we're going to come back to that later because that is huge and holds important ramifications for us. And then verse 18, oh, sorry, verse 17, he is the sustainer of all things. Now, this is, this is also really important, right? Things continue. The laws of the universe continue because the laws of the universe are a manifestation of Jesus. This is really important. Right, I used to be a physics teacher. And for any of you here with any knowledge and understanding of physics, if we look at particle physics and understand that the world's material is made of atoms, and the basic structure of an atom is you've got a bunch of positively charged protons in the middle with a couple of neutrons mixed in with no charge, and then you've got electrons whizzing around the outside that are negative. But here's the problem, right? One of the core foundational understandings in physics is that like particles repel each other, which means that in the center of everything in existence, you've got a whole bunch of protons that are desperately trying to get away from each other, okay? Now, without something holding those together, what that means is if left to themselves, all of matter will instantaneously disintegrate, but that does not happen. Why is that? We have no idea. So what scientists have decided is there must be something sustaining that, holding that nucleus together, and we don't know what it is. It sounds a lot like magic, but we can't call it magic, so we're going to give it a flash physics name. We're going to call it nuclear binding energy or a nuclear binding force. That's what it is. That's clever. That holds it all together. We don't actually know what it is. Let me tell you, maybe it's not nuclear binding energy, or maybe it is nuclear binding energy, but I'll tell you one thing. We know that Jesus is sustaining all things, and without that, every Everything falls apart. Amen. Not only that, he is also head and Lord of the church. He oversees it. He directs it. He owns it. And that too is important. We're almost through the crazy, but hold on. And now three things we need Jesus because of. Firstly, in verse 21, he tells us that we were alienated from God. But in verse 22, that through Jesus, we have been reconciled brought back close into the family. Secondly, we were enemies in our mind of God, verse 21, but verse 22, now not only are we no longer enemies, but we are without blame. Thirdly, we were doer of wicked actions. That's why we needed Jesus. We did bad things. But now we are not only forgiven, but we are free from accusation. That is so important because it ties back into what we read before because the devil is the accuser of the family of God. And when the devil comes to accuse you, which he does so consistently and so well, you need to remember that you are free from accusation. And Paul goes on and says, if you continue in your faith, and he talks a little bit more about the gospel, powerful things. Now, from all of these three, Sorry, from all of these, three things stand out about Jesus that we need to get aligned with if we are to know and live in what is true and to see God's power in our lives and to know him personally. The first one is this. Jesus is 
Lord of creation. Now, this is a big deal. Colossians 1.15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, and all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before Him, and here it is. In Him all things hold together. Thank you, nuclear binding energy. Creation is His. Jesus is master. He is owner of creation. And that means he can intervene if he so chooses. Remember, many years ago, when Liz's mum was alive, she was diagnosed with cancer. They did biopsies. It was definitely cancer. It was tough. And, you know, she hadn't had an easy life. And it was just difficult. This wasn't fair. So, you know, we prayed. We asked God to intervene. The day of the operation arrived, and they operated. And they cut out all of the cancer. And they tested it. And then they had to come and tell us it was not cancerous. It was not cancer. And the doctors were just embarrassed. They were embarrassed because they couldn't explain it. They didn't have to be embarrassed. It was just God had done a miracle. That's what it was. She was completely free. She lived many, many more years before the Lord took her home. And, and, and this leads us to the key question. How do miracles happen? How do the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry on occasion get suspended in ways that people who have trained their whole life in this cannot explain. It's because he is Lord of creation. Amen? Okay, on to the second thing that's important for us as we come towards a close. He is Lord of the church. Colossians 1.18, he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have, here it is, supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, this is important, right? Because the church at the end of the day, the church is his. Jesus is master and owner of the church. And when a man or a woman takes ownership of a church for themselves, it is only a matter of time before Jesus will come and he will take that church back and he will give it to somebody else. In Revelation chapter 2, we have Jesus speaking metaphorically, uh, calling a church's lampstands. He's talking to one of the leaders of one of these seven churches, and he's using this metaphor, and as part of it, he, he calls the church a lampstand. And he says this, if you do not repent to the leader of one of these churches, if you do not repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. Interesting, right? I knew this church many years ago. Over a period of time, in order to be successful, their pastor embarked on a huge building program, which it turned out later was driven by his wife and financial administrator, despite the fact that he felt that God was saying that they shouldn't go ahead. As time went on, pressure built. Their congregation began to decline as he spent more and more time trying to drive the project instead of operating in his gifting and that he was anointed to do as shepherd of the church. And as a result, they began to take on more and more personal loans from congregation members that they could never pay back. They became abusive controlling of staff and congregation members. It was just an absolute nightmare. I remember talking to one of the staff after it all blown up and we were working through a bunch of the issues. And they, they shared the story with me of going to a conference once as a staff. And then one of the staff members, the junior staff members, became violently sick, really, really ill. And so this staff member gave her her car, so she could get back to the, to the motel and just go to bed and rest up and the whole thing. 
as the conference, they went on and into the evening, they went and, and went and spoke to the, the pastors, the senior pastors, and told them what had happened, and they seemed relatively disinterested. And then as the conference closed, the staff member went to them and said, can I just get a ride with you back to the accommodation because I've given my car to this staff member who was so sick? And the wife replied, not our problem. She was left in the dark, 11 p.m. at night, in a not-so-happy area of Auckland, afraid and in tears. And it was only a kind-hearted conference volunteer who was locking up the facility who found her and gave her, to a lift, uh, gave her a lift to her motel. Let me say this. When a shepherd abuses and abandons the sheep, the head shepherd will intervene. Sometime later, this pastor burned out, fell apart, and literally within seven days, this couple were gone, and the church was given to someone else who cares for this church, and this church is now flourishing. Jesus is Lord of his church, and we can trust that. And he is looking for men and women who understand that and who will look to him and lead and serve as shepherds. And that's why I love these guys here. Shepherds, shepherds. These guys have just, these are the people. Just awesome. He is Lord of the church. And then thirdly, and finally, if the team can come now, that'd be great. He is the Lord of changed lives. You see, Colossians says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Now, this is so important. Change belongs to God. He is the Lord of the breakthrough. He is the one who turns Things around. He is the master and owner of true life change. When a life is truly turned around from bad to good, from moral evil to goodness and holiness, it's because he has made a way. He makes that possible. And as a result of spiritual breakthrough, then emotional, physical, mental healing and true change begins to happen. I had a good friend many, many years ago. He was successful, he was popular, he was a real hard-out party boy, moved in wealthy circles. You know, he came to church after being convinced that the devil was trying to get him to commit suicide. He found himself walking into a river in the middle of winter to drown himself after giving into these voices in his head. And then as he was going under the water, another voice cut through and said to him, get out of the river, go to church. Deeply shaken, he, he pulled himself out of the river. Two days later, he happens to be at the church that we were in. He walks to the front, he runs to the front as the salvation call is given. In tears, he falls on his knees. He's reconciled to God and he is saved. I remember about a year later, I was out witnessing on the street with him. And he came across a bunch of his friends from his old party days that he hadn't seen since that time. And this was what was most intriguing. They simply refused to believe he was a Christian. They could not believe that of all the people they knew in the world, if there was anyone who would never become a Christian, it was this guy. They kept saying, you've got to be having us on. Come on, this has got to be a joke. But it wasn't. And he shared his story with them. God had done what everyone considered impossible. You know, over, the, over this time, he was invited to many groups to share his story, and he saw many, many people get saved. But over time, issues began to come out of his life, right? 
issues from his past, things he'd been involved with, all that kind of thing. He went to counselors, he got help, and slowly his life was healed. Today he's part of a wonderful, thriving church, not in this country, married to an amazing woman, also with an astonishing testimony. He's got three great kids, and he's a faithful, solid man, but it only happened because Jesus is Lord of changed lives. Here's the thought today. Don't let Jesus slip out of focus. Can I say this to you? Let's just get nuts and bolts for a moment here. You know, it's not about living a good life. Know Jesus more and your life will be fine. It's not even about getting fixated on having right theology. Honestly, you get to know Jesus more, your theology will be just fine. It's not even about those hobby horses we have. You know, oh, it's all about evangelism. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's just all about worship or it's just all about discipleship or, or it's all about, about which day is the Sabbath or, or which church you go to even. You know, we all have big things, but I'm telling you this, unless Jesus is your big thing, none of those other big things were going to lead you in the right direction. Jesus is Lord of creation. He is Lord of of the church. Remember what we're talking about when we say Lord. And He is the Lord who changed lives. When Jesus is in the center, when we know Him better, we will find ourselves more and more in alignment with His kingdom and the will of God on this earth. So how do we get to know Jesus better? The last two minutes, this has been helpful to me. Let me give you one to-do for your to-do list for this week. Many years ago, a man by the name of Charles Sheldon, who was a pastor in a medium-sized church, did something rather different for his evening services. He started writing a book. And every evening service, he read a chapter of the book in place of a sermon. Soon, the church was packed to overflowing and lives were being transformed. What was the book about? It was all about Jesus and how to keep Jesus at the center. It was about walking in his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. The story in plot is about a pastor who asks his congregation to commit to not making any major decision without first asking the question, what would Jesus do if he was in my shoes? The book called In His Steps follows the lives of several congregation members from different parts of society as the daily practice of asking this question and wrestling with the answers were slowly, uh, which are slowly worked out in their lives, end up ultimately powerfully changing not only their lives, but the community that they're in. Interestingly, history shows that that church became an incredibly influential church in the community that it was in. Now, I don't know if there's a better practice to, to get to know Jesus better than to ask that question. What would Jesus do if he was in my shoes. So let me challenge you. Is Jesus at the center? Because that's what Paul is asking of the church in Colossae, and that's what I believe God has asked me to come and ask of the church in Pukekohe. Is Jesus at the center? Are you struggling with challenges in your job? A difficult boss, challenging colleagues, practices that maybe you're not comfortable with? Try asking, what would Jesus do if he was in my shoes? Are you wrestling with relationship stuff, a marriage that's lost its freshness, a friendship that's turning toxic, a family member you've fallen out with? Ask this, what would Jesus do if he was in my shoes? Are you facing financial stress, 
things just not quite going your way, feeling stumped about how to turn things around, not sure what the next step is, try asking, what would Jesus do if he was in your shoes? Or maybe it's your health. Maybe you're in a bad place physically or a dark place mentally or in a hard place emotionally. What would Jesus do if he was in your shoes? Why don't we take a moment and pray together right now? Jesus, we just want to say again today, God, that we need you back in the center. We need you front and center of our lives. You're the one that we are told to follow. You're the one we are told in whose steps we should walk. And so, Lord, we pray that in a new way and in a fresh way, as we fix our eyes on you, you will lead us. And we pray for all the things in our lives that are good and bad. We pray that you will align them all with you and your kingdom and your will and your plan for us and the neighborhood we're in, the work we're in, the family we're in. Lord, we want your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you've never taken that step of actually putting him sent in front of in your life, sent in front of, front and center in your life. Maybe this is your moment. For me, it was 22 years of age in a gas station on Manicare Road. Three o'clock in the morning. That's when it happened for me. Maybe today's your day. If you would like to put Jesus front and center in your life, I'd love to lead you in a prayer. Because the Bible says that Jesus loves you. He also says that we've all sinned, every one of us, me included, fallen short of God's standard. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he came and died on the cross for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we could be set free from our past. Jesus says in the book of John that to all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look, if that's you and you want to take that step right now, let me lead you in a prayer. Why don't you pray this along with me? Here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. I confess today that I am a sinner and you are not front and center. But Jesus, I believe today that you came for me. I believe that you are the one who has made a way for me to step into the life that is truly life. Jesus, I receive you into my heart as my God and as my Lord. From this day on, I will follow you. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you that you will never leave me. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Just wait for your head still bowed and every eye still closed. Did you